We look at Romans today, and I think it's so important for us as we think in our spiritual walk that we kind of know where we are in this walk. Some of us, I think a lot of people in the church are under the illusion that they're okay. They're under the understanding, or they have presumed to be under the understanding, that they're just fine. And maybe you are, but maybe you're not. And so I begin today, I'm going to tell you kind of a, I guess it's kind of a funny story, and some of you are going to go, I cannot believe he told this story, but you've said that before and you'll probably say it again. But I remember uh, you know, growing up, I, my family, we would always go to Garden City, South Carolina um, during the summer. It was always July 4th week, and when our whole family would go, 15, 16, 17 of us, as, as I, and we would, we would rent out this house for the week. It was a fun beach trip, and one of the things that we did, for those of you, any, anybody ever been to Garden City? Okay, so good. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember that there used to be an amusement park called Magic Harbor? Uh, right there, I think it was right off Highway 17, if I'm not mistaken. It's long since been gone. It's, sort of, it's gone by the wayside. It's not there anymore. But there was this place called Magic Harbor. Magic Harbor was an amusement park, and that was like the highlight of our beach week, other than shooting fireworks and trying to shoot at people that were walking on the beach, which is another thing that I enjoyed to do. Um, and so... Uh, so we go to, you know, go to Magic Harbor, and as usual, I mean, July 4th week is kind of the peak week, and there's tons of people, and so they have this haunted house, and I thought it was appropriate because we just kind of went through Halloween, they have this haunted house, and the line is like an hour long, uh, and for any child to wait an hour, I mean, that's pretty, that's kind of, that kind of shows that I don't have ADD or ADHD, you know what I mean? Well, maybe not, but anyway, so I, I was committed to waiting an hour in line, so I'm standing in line. At Magic Harbor, and I'm actually on the outside, and the, you know, there's asphalt all around, and you have all these people walking, and they're kind of cutting in front of us, kind of cut through the line or whatnot to get to their own little destinations of the, of the part of the amusement park. And it suddenly occurs to me, I have got to go to the bathroom. Now, I'm eight years old, I'm eight or nine years old, no older than that. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of doing my little dance, you know, I've got to go. And so, you know, I, but it's an hour to get in, and I've already waited like, you know, 20, 20 minutes, so I'm not going to get out of line. And so I'm sitting there, and I try to get my mind off of it, you know, and I'm trying not to think of things like Niagara Falls and other things. I'm trying to get my mind off of the idea that I have got to use the bathroom. Now, one thing I'll say is that when you're young, you can wait. And what I mean, what I mean when you get old, now that I'm 38, I'll just say this, when I have to go, I have to go. I Like I have a 10-minute warning, and then, you know, it, it's not a good experience. So I was, I was standing in line, and my father comes up, and he says, and he said, well, I'm, you know, I'm with your brother. And he said, you know, and at that time, you could leave me alone, and nobody would take me. You know, and now this, you would never do this today. But so he goes along his way. Well, I, you know, I've, I have got to go. And so, um, you know, I wait, and we continue to get forward. I'm still standing outside waiting to get in. And all of a sudden, I feel this warm sensation. It, and, I, and I remember it vividly. Susan Duggar is like holding her head down. She's like, I cannot believe he talked about this. But anyway, uh, my, my shoes are filled up, okay? And the cup starts running over. And there's this trickle. It's on a heel. And it starts going down the wayside. And I'm just standing there, la-da-da. You know, I don't want to draw attention to the fact. My father comes over and pulls me out. What are you thinking? I was like... I had to go. Well, why didn't you get out of line? Well, I said, well, once I went, what's the big deal? Might as well just sit in line. I mean, you know, sit in line. And so uh, I go through, the, go through this whole event. I mean, I, I mean, it was just ridiculous. Had to change clothes and all these things. And so 
you know, in that experience, what I learned is that, you know, you can be determined to do something, and then you can have these hiccups along the way, and I was determined that I wasn't going to allow that hiccup mess up what my ultimate goal was. But the problem, first and foremost, that I had is I did not realize what situation I was in. I had not prepared for that moment. Because one of the things that my parents always taught me, and that's one of the things that you as parents teach your kids is, before you go out of the house, what do you say to your kids? Before you go on a long trip, make sure you use the bathroom before you go. Why? So that you can be prepared so that you don't have to stop on the way and so you don't have to have that catastrophic event that happened when I was eight years old at Magic Harbor. I mean, and I'm telling you, people, I mean, I could see people talking about it. I mean, they're just standing in line and just, it, it never ended. Now, the bottom line is this. My father conceded to me, and so, and I was, I was, I was talking to him about this a couple of years ago, and he said he didn't remember this at all. But um, he was like, well, you know, you got a point. So we just literally went together and got on the haunted house ride all soaking wet and everything else. And then after I went on the haunted house ride, then we went out to change clothes. Now, you say, what in the world does that story have to do with Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8? Has everything to do with it? Because here is ultimately what we have to understand. First and foremost, you and I have got to understand the condition that we're in. We have to understand who we are, whose we are, and what we're bringing to the table of discussion, particularly what we're bringing spiritually. Now, Romans 5, chapter six, uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, says that you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And then he goes on to say, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So first and foremost, understanding who we are, understanding our condition, we are sinners. Now, I remember uh, 15 years ago when I was in college... And in that, in that time while I was in college, or it's actually been longer than that, 15, 16 years ago, when I was in college, um, I would have people that were also studying religion and, and philosophy, and they'd say to me, well, you know, once I've accepted Christ, I don't sin anymore. Uh, because ta- uh, Christ has taken the sin upon him. And, so, and there is a group of people out there uh, that don't believe, they believe once they accept Christ, that they're no longer sinners. The only problem I have with that is, I know them, and I know me. Uh, And I know that we're kind of all in the same boat. Just because you accept Christ doesn't mean that you don't sin anymore. As a matter of fact, you may find that you have more temptation and you may sin more because you finally realize that some things that you had not considered sin, now you do see that are sin because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so first and foremost, we have to realize our condition. We are sinners. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person that's walked this planet other than Jesus has sinned. Now, sin as we define it, and many of you know this, but sin as we define it is anything that comes in between me or you and our relationship with God. Sin can be 
Simple, sin can be complex. The consequences of sin can vary to minor infractions, to to major things. For instance, if you murder, the crime for murder and the punishment for murder is going to be much uh, much greater than if you simply go down and you you steal a cup of coffee or you steal, uh, steal a piece of bread. There's a difference in the ramification of the sin, but all of it is the same. It's all separating us from God. So every single person on this planet is a sinner. Uh, We've all missed the mark, so to speak. We have failed to live as God would want us to live. We have not met God's expectation. No matter how good we are, no matter how great we are, no matter how much we plan, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much scripture memorization that we can do, we still are going to fall short of God's ultimate plan for us. And any time that we do that, that is is sin. So we have to understand our condition. And we have to understand that that condition taints us. That condition makes us unclean in the sense if we borrow an Old Testament concept you have clean and unclean we are unclean because of sin sin is the blemish upon us and so that prevents us from having a a relationship with God because God cannot stand in the presence of evil or of ungodliness or of unrighteousness or as we might like to say unholiness God has called us to holiness though we are not yet Holy. We have to understand our condition. Secondly, you and I have got to understand our situation. And our situation is this. I don't care how much you work out. I don't care who you know. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many cars you can drive. I don't care how big your house is or whether you live in the right neighborhood or the wrong neighborhood. Whether you grew up on the right side of the tracks, left side of the tracks, the good side of the tracks, or the bad side of the tracks. It doesn't really matter. Our situation is all the same. And that is this fact. We are powerless. No matter how articulate we are in our actions or how articulate we are in our, uh, in our statements, we are powerless to do anything about this situation of sin. Sin has mired us up. Sin has messed us up. And if you don't believe that, just look around you this morning. Look and think about your family. Look and think about your extended family. Look and think about your closest friends. And I bet you it's not, you're not going to have to think a long time before you can see, you know, that relationship is mired up. That relationship is messed up. This person is messed up. This person's got issues. And you're going to start pointing fingers. Yep. Oh, God, thank you that that person's got issues and that person's got issues and that person's got issues and that person. Thank you, God, for not making me a person who has issues. Sometimes the person with the greatest issues are the people that think they don't have any. Because all of us are messed up, fouled up, mired up, but thank God for Jesus. Because Jesus gives the opportunity and the potential to go from the way we are to a person that he has designed us to be. But in order to do that, we have to understand our condition. We have to understand our situation. Sin brings death. The ultimate, the ultimate payment, the ultimate paycheck for sin is death. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin, in other words, the payment for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we can do to get rid of sin in our lives in the sense of 
it's determined to present us to death. Sin will ultimately lead to our death. The gift of God is eternal life, not for everyone, but for those who would choose to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. You and I have got to understand our condition. We have got to understand our situation. And that is, we can't fix this problem. And see, that's a big issue for a lot of us. Because in this country and in our culture, we want to be able to fix ourselves. If something is broken, we fix it. We think if we could pray harder, we could serve more, we could give more, that somehow that is going to help. We attend church more, we help people more, that somehow that's going to fix the brokenness the spiritual brokenness that we're facing. And the truth of the matter is, our situation does not permit that. Our situation does not allow that. Because we are sinners. Our situation is that we are powerless, as the Bible teaches. And when we think of Jesus and the cross, we've got to think that we are responsible for his death because he is taking on himself the sin In the cross event. That's why Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for sin. Both past, present, and future. So for everything that we've done in the past. Everything that we're doing in the present. Everything that we're doing in the future. Christ did it in that one moment on the cross. For all time past. For all time present. And for all time future. God reconciled the world In the cross event, gave everybody in the entire universe the opportunity to come and be in right relationship with him. But it hinges upon our ability, and very key here, it hinges upon our ability to believe in what he said he has done. To trust and put our faith and confidence in him. And Christ saves us as a result of what Christ has done on the cross. And our willingness to choose not only to believe that, but to pursue him with everything that we are. Now, you say, now wait a minute. Now, you've said before it's not based on what we do. It's not. It's based on Christ and the cross. And the equation or the mathematical issue that we face is... What do we, I mean, we have to respond, we respond to that. What is it that we bring to the table of discussion? We bring nothing to the table of discussion. What we bring is ourselves. We offer ourselves as the sacrifice. We offer ourselves to him and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. God, not my way, but I want to follow your way. God, I want to take your yoke upon me. I want to take your calling upon my life. And I want to pursue you with all that I am. And so what he says is when we understand our situation, when you and I, understand that we're powerless and here here's how here's how you'll know if you've grasped this it is only by being broken that God can pick up the pieces and make you whole again if you have never been broken before God God's not going to fix what we don't perceive to be broken necessarily So if you've been going through this Christian life as you're okay and God, I just kind of need you for extra oomph, you have missed the mark. When God wants to do something amazing in my life and in your life, it is through our brokenness when we recognize that we are powerless. When you and I recognize we are powerless, it is at that point that we begin the brokenness of our story. 
That he can take these broken pieces and he can mend and he can shape them in ways that we never imagined. God is in the business of restoring people. He's in the business of reconciling people's relationships. He's in the business of transforming families, transforming relationships in husbands and wives, with fathers and their sons, with mothers and their daughters and their children, with grandparents and cousins and extended family situations. God is in the business of resurrecting brokenness and giving us something that was far better than what we could have imagined. But that's only going to happen when you and I understand Our condition as sinners, our situation as powerless and broken. And we we must understand that because of sin, we are spiritually dead and we are eternally separated from God unless we accept, and my third point is, understanding His solution. We have to understand our situation. We have to understand our condition. And we have to comprehend God's solution. And it really is that simple. That, you know, we understand that we're sinners. We understand that we're powerless. That there's nothing that we can do to throw off this, this yoke of sin. Or to throw off this, this, uh, this, this huge weight of sin on our lives. The only thing that we can do is trust and believe in a God who has already gone to the cross for us. And the amazing thing about the story of Christ is that God went to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ long before we ever were in this world. That he sacrificed his only son for us long before we could ever utter the name of Jesus. Long before we were ever thought of in the womb by our parents or anybody else. Long before our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and all the way back multiple generations before we were ever, our family was ever conceived in origin. God, who was from the beginning, had a great plan. And that plan was to redeem the entire world and to bring the entire world into a right relationship with Him. That is ultimately the solution. Because in verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for us in the death of Jesus, in the event on the cross. Christ takes upon himself your sin, my sin, and all the sin of the world. And in that moment... Where Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he utters that, between that moment and he utters this fact of it is finished. What Jesus said was finished is this. That it is done. That the payment for sin is done. We no longer have to sacrifice lambs. We no longer have to sacrifice goats. We have no longer have to sacrifice any animal because God sent his son to be the sacrifice for all time in all places and to put us in right relationship and fellowship with God the Father. That is the solution. That is the only way. There is no other way, no other understanding except through Christ and Christ alone and you're in our commitment to pursue him. Now there's a lot of other tempting things out there. 
There's a lot of other religions that are noble causes and will lead you to have a moral life. God has not called us to have a moral life. God has called us to have a sacrificial life and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So while I can celebrate other religions and I can appreciate similarities and teachings of other religions, there is one way and that's through Jesus. And until I die, that is what I will say because I not only believe it because my belief has nothing to do with it. God has said it. He's spoken it. He says the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6 is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the door through which we must enter. There's no back door. There's no side door. There's no under door. There's no above door. He's the door. He's the hinge. Belief and trust in Christ alone for salvation is the solution. Why is it, though, that so many of us, as we sit here today, we understand our condition? We understand We understand that we are sinners. We've heard that. We know that we make bad choices. We know that we make mistakes. We know and understand our situation. We know that we're powerless. That we have to rely on God. But why is it that even though we know those two things and we know that God is ultimately the solution. His, his solution is Jesus. And we know that. We've been taught that. We, go to, we have Easter every year, every year. We come. We know the resurrection of Jesus. We know belief in Him. We've been taught that since we were children. Why is it that the knowledge of these things doesn't lead us to pursue Him with a better life, a better understanding of a call, and a better commitment? It's because it's not about knowledge. The devil knows that there are sinners. He knows he's a sinner. The devil knows that he is ultimately powerless against Jesus. The devil knows the solution. I mean, if you go back and you look at the Gospels and you see this part after Jesus is baptized in the Gospels and he goes away for 40 days. And in those 40 days in the desert, he's tempted. And you come into the dialogue of the conversation between the devil, Satan, and between Jesus, who is the Son of God. The devil makes three or four statements, and it's always the same thing. And most of our translations are translating it incorrectly. It's actually what's called, for those of you who are more linguistic people, it's a third-class conditional statement, not a first-class conditional statement. Your translations will say that the devil says, if you are the Son of God, then do whatever. But a better rendering is, the devil is not questioning where Jesus is the Son of God. The devil is asserting that Jesus is the Son of God. It is a given statement. He says, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Since you are the Son of God, uh, compel a legion of angels to come to your rescue. Since you are the Son of God, why don't you fall down and worship me? And I will give you basically, this is my words, keys to the kingdom. You can have the entire world. The devil knows who Jesus is. He understands who he is. He understands what his condition is. He understands what his situation is. He understands what God's solution is for the world. 
But yet he too doesn't follow suit with it. So if we know all these things and this knowledge does not impact our lives, this knowledge doesn't change us, then what changes us? What can lead us to have a better commitment to Christ? What can lead us to have a real commitment to Christ so that we are not under the illusion of salvation and that salvation is a real and personal thing? And our relationship with Christ is not one of these roller coaster rides where we have these spiritual highs and these spiritual lows and we're just praying for the next high because we need that high, we need that rush, we need that feeling because that's what keeps us going on. What we need is Jesus. God demonstrates his love for us in Christ dying for us. He takes upon himself your sin, my sin, the sins of the entire world. And in that moment of the cross, he destroys sin's power on our past, on our present, and on our future. Romans 6.23 will later say, The gift of God is eternal life. See, every single one of us wants to jump through the hoops of Christianity so that we have fire insurance. So that it prevents us from experiencing eternal hell. But God's call on our lives is not just so that we escape hell. It's so that we experience heaven. We experience his kingdom. And the beauty of a relationship with Christ, you say, well, I just, you know, I, I want to make that decision. I want to make that commitment. I have all this knowledge. Todd, I understand that. I've got this stored right back here. I know our situation. I know I'm powerless. I know his solution. But I'm not ready to do it because I want to live my life the way I want to. And when I get older, I'll make a decision to trust in Christ. And I run into that a lot. And that's what many of you are thinking this morning. I'll make a decision in the future. I'll accept his solution. I know it. I know it. But I'm just not ready. And I kind of want to live my life. I kind of want to do my own thing. I want to have life on my terms. You say, I'll do it in five years or ten years. And five years or ten years comes down the pike. And then we say another five or ten years. And we never make the commitment. And the reason we don't make the commitment is because we want what we want. And when you and I want what we want and we're determined to get what we want and we're determined that no one is going to get in the way of what we want, then basically what that means is that when you and I make that decision, if God, if we could draw a picture this morning and, and let's just say, for instance, let's say this beautiful Alabama colored chair is God's throne. And let's just say that, that God's sitting on his throne. And every time you and I make a decision to do things our way, every time we make a decision to have life the way we wanted, basically what I do and what you do when that happens is we say, God, I'm kicking you to the curb. I'll sit on my throne. I'll make my decisions. I'll lead my family the way I want to. I'll lead my life the way I want to. 
And then when I get done of being in charge, when I get done of expanding my kingdom, when I get done of doing the things that I want to do and acquiring the toys that I want to acquire and having the life that I've always wanted, then God, I'll allow you to come back in and you can have your throne. This is what I know. No king ever willingly gives up his throne. The only king that has ever willingly given up his throne is the king who died for you and the king who died for me. When you and I are the king, when you and I sit on our throne making decisions for our lives, making choices that we want to make, when you and I are determined to have the life that we've always wanted, have you ever considered the fact that it's not about having the life that you've wanted, but possibly having a life that God's always wanted for you? If you've bought into the idea that you can wait, if you bought into the idea I'll do it next year or I'll do it when in my 20s or I'll do it in my 30s or I'll do it once I get married and have kids because you're thinking that it's going to cost you too much in the here and now. You're thinking you're not going to be able to have fun. Let me tell you something. If you're looking at salvation as something to gain when you die and to understand that salvation comes in the moment of accepting Christ and your life is radically transformed in that moment. And here's the thing. Heaven is not a place we're going. Heaven is an experience. The kingdom of God is not coming. The kingdom of God is here. That's what Jesus said from the very beginning. The kingdom of God is near. And then later he would say the kingdom of God is here. You and I can have a little bit of heaven today. Your life can be better than what you think it could be. Your life can take on a new nuance that you never imagined. But you've got to be willing to step down off this throne. Because guess what? It's not yours to have. It's not mine to have. It's his. He predates you. He postdates you. There will be a time when people will come and they will pay respect to your body lying in a casket or your ashes in an urn and they will shake the hands of your family members and then six months later they will visit you. They will visit you at the cemetery and they'll look on your tombstone or they'll look on your headstone and what they will see is there's your name. It'll have a nice poetic description about you and it'll have your birth date and it will have your death date. And the most important thing is not your name. The most important thing is not your birth. The most important thing is not your death. The most important thing is not the cute little poem that they put on your headstone. The most important thing is the dash. Because the dash represents the life that you had. The life that God had given you. And the question is, is that dash matter? Does that dash matter in this moment? Are you living your life understanding that you're a sinner? Knowing that you are powerless and understanding God's solution, not just in the head, but in your life service to Him. The pain, the agony, the torture, the embarrassment, the torment, the shame, it all bears down in the cross event. And the fact about the cross is this. 
We don't deserve it. We can't ever earn it. We so desperately need it. We must prayerfully accept it. We must willingly share it. And that is the fact. God loves you. God has demonstrated his love for you. Not because you have a blessed life. Not because you have a wife and children and you live in the American dream. The demonstration of God's love is he has given Jesus. And I just want to ask this this morning in the close. How much of your life is centered orbiting around the person of Jesus Christ? And how much of your life is orbiting around you? Because if your life is orbiting around you, you are on your throne. Enjoy your kingdom. But the kingdoms of this world will pass away. You will die. I will die. The kingdom that lasts is the kingdom of God. Which kingdom do you want to be a part of? The one that's gone in the wind? Or the one who sends the wind? The one who defines the wind? The one that defines the weather? The one that has caused all the orchestration of the planets and suspended them in space and the stars and the heavens and who has positioned you in this time and in this place? The most important part of your tombstone is not your epitaph. It is your dash because it represents your life where are you headed? How are you living? Or is it your kingdom or is it his? Do you really understand your condition? Do we really understand our situation? And do we really comprehend God's solution? Because if we do, we have no choice logically, intellectually. We must surrender ourselves to the lordship of Christ. We must let go of our kingdom and allow him to reign. Because when he is reigning, we become his subject. When he reigns, he's in charge. And we do his will. And this is what I know. If you don't believe this, look in the Old Testament. When the people of God took God into battle, when they fervently sought God, they don't lose. When you and I take God into life and into life's battles, we do not lose. You and I lose when we decide to negotiate the terms. You and I decide to lose when we kick him off the throne and we put ourselves in this place. Our place, our position before Almighty God has always got to be such as this. God, not my will, but yours be done. And that must not simply be a prayer that we offer on Sunday. That must be a prayerful experience day in and day out, moment by moment. A prayer over our finances, a prayer over our children, a prayer over their future and our future and our present and their present. A prayer over the church. We must seek God's will because ultimately that's all that matters because it's his kingdom. It's not ours. So let me ask you this again. Do you really know your condition? Do you really understand your situation? And do you really finally get his solution?
So with your situation and your condition and his solution, it's now our decision. Do you believe what he says or do you not? Are you going to walk out of these doors today thinking that you're okay and you're going to continue to buy into the illusion? Because sooner or later your bubble's going to be popped and you're going to recognize the fact that you don't have it all figured out like you thought you did. Are you going to believe that it's his kingdom, it's his son, it's his sacrifice, it's his death, it's his atonement for his glory? Because you and me, we are his. Let's pray. Lord, how you love us and how you demonstrate that through the person of Christ. Lord, so many of us, we've heard this time and time again. We've heard it so many times that our spirits are almost numb to the fact of talking about the fact that we are sinners of understanding the fact that we know that we're powerless against the mighty God and even comprehending the solution. We know the solution. We get this. But yet the reality is, God, that those beliefs and those understandings have not led us to a better fulfilled life. They've not led us to a deeper commitment. We've not grown. We may sit here today, Lord, and say, you know, I I don't see a, a spiritual growth in my life in the last year, even the last five years, or even the last month, if we are not daily growing closer to you, then we must be either stagnant or growing further apart. Our condition, our situation, your solution, it's now our decision. Are we going to continue just to go through life the way it always is, the mundane aspects of it, Or do we want to enter a season of Thanksgiving? Do we want to enter a season of Christmas with you having made your advent, your beginning in our lives? Because Jesus has come for the whole world. And he's come for each of us. But the question for us is, can we look in the mirror and say, I know for a fact that Jesus has come for me because he's living in my heart and in my soul today. Lord, give us the strength that we need, the endurance that we need to look at you differently, to accept you and accept your truth. But as we enter this holiday season in the next couple weeks, as we get in the hustle and bustle of all the season brings, may we be able to hear and sense the still small voice of God saying, it is for you that I died It is for you that I gave my life. It is for you. And I want you to have a fulfilling, flourishing life like you have never imagined. Maybe sitting here today, broken. Somebody said something to you that hurt you. Somebody hurt you physically. Somebody hurt you emotionally. Somebody has scarred you spiritually. And you've been crying out and it doesn't seem that your tears ever stop. Today, I want you to know that God heals the brokenhearted. So though your dreams have been dashed and your life has been shattered, God is the only solution, the only one that can work in your life. The only one that can usher in the healing that you so desperately need. 
will we respond? Maybe today you say, I would love to be a part of First Baptist Church. I think this is the place that God wants me to flourish, to use my gifts and my talents to serve Him and to advance His kingdom, if that's your prayer. We'd love to know that. Maybe someone today says, I need to recommit myself. I have, I've understood all these things that the pastors talked about, but today... I just feel like I've been so distant. I haven't spiritually grown. I feel like I'm on the verge of brokenness. God is the only one that can fill your vessel. God is the only one that will allow your cup to runneth over. But you have to respond. You have to accept it. You have to not just believe it. You have to apply it in your life. Lord, may our faith be on the move. May you grow us. Deepen our relationships with one another and deepen our relationship with you. May we not just understand these things for knowledge's sake, but may we apply them in our behavior and every, in every contextualization of our lives, whether it's at work or school or home, out in public. Lord, begin fresh and new today, creating us a clean heart that seeks you. Lord, as we come today, as we respond today, as we make decisions today. Guide our thoughts. Guide our actions. May we be spirit-led through the work that you're doing in our lives and our hearts. And all God's people say, amen. If you're here this morning and you need to make a decision, perhaps to trust in Christ for the first time, maybe to join this fellowship or perhaps recommit yourself to the Lord, we want to give you that opportunity. We just simply ask that you come. You don't have to say anything to me. You can just walk the aisle. You can say, you know, I'm here to join. I'm here to recommit. I'll pray for you. It's just that simple. But more important than you showing a physical presence here in front of people, I'm more concerned about your spiritual presence before God who loves you. Where's your heart? Are you on the throne or is he? Is he leading and directing your life or is he not? But as we stand, as we sing, won't you come? Won't you make a decision this morning as we worship?